This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This is episode number 560, and today we're going to talk a little practice to research. Uh, looking forward to a great discussion on the, the types of things we as practitioners need from the research community. We're going to have John Lapoter join us on the line, past IAQA president and the current IAQ president, Jay Stake. Also see uh, some great listeners uh, tuning in. Looking forward to some good comments and questions today. Before we get started, let's thank our platinum sponsor, IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. I'm sorry to report there was no correct answer to last week's IAQ trivia question, which was, name the substance whose dust is responsible for pneumoconiosis. The answer to that question was coal. The IAQ radio trivia question for today, Friday the 4th of September 2019, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company providing unique solutions to odor removal surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's trivia question. Who coined the term scientist to describe someone who studies the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experimentation? Back to you, Joe. All right, thank you, Cliff. Some of you may have noticed on uh, Thursday when we put out the blog from the Carl Grimes show, I had Danny Special Forces Hunt joining us, but Unfortunately, Danny, uh, I think this is a good lesson, too, for all of us. If you're in the indoor air quality world, we had a show uh, probably six months ago now, Dr. David Corey, and we were talking about a method he has now for developing or for, uh, uh, for looking at sputum and determine, helping to determine if people have fungal infections. Well, it turns out Danny uh, and I both sent our uh, samples in, and, and Dr. Corey said he's more than happy to take samples from anybody in the industry. He works for the government, so the, they didn't charge us for the analysis. And uh, Danny had a massive fungal infection in his sinuses, along with some polyps, and had surgery last week to uh, remove the polyps, and uh, hopefully he's recovering. Uh, we were hoping to get him back on the show today, but... Like I said, he's, uh, he's not up to it at the moment. Uh, pretty tough surgery, cleaning out those sinuses. I've got a little one myself, so we'll be uh, talking to the doctor next week and see 
see if maybe I need some antifungal therapy. I think uh, we've had a few other listeners take advantage of that offer from the doctor. So if you want to uh, send in your, your sputum sample, let me know, because I think uh, it may be an issue that uh, maybe is underlooked a little in our, in our, uh, in our group here. So before we uh, move on, I want to, uh, let's, let's move on to the next topic, actually. Uh, Cliff, in the past, we've done research, um, practice to research at the Healthy Building Summit, and you did two over the last couple of years, and I wonder if you could talk to listeners a little bit about what you find. They were some really simple and uh, quick types of uh, evaluation on a couple topics. Uh, thanks, Joe. I, I think the primary motivation for you know, wanting to do some sort of research project was really to determine whether or not there was truth in advertising and, and truth in marketing. And, you know, what, what's funny is we were talking before the show today for a few minutes and you were complaining about an article that you read in an in industry journal that had a bunch of misinformation. in it. And I, I tend to see it all the time and I don't look for it, but it just kind of pops up and I'll see something that really doesn't seem to make sense to me. And uh, I, I kind of want to try to get to uh, the bottom of it. You know, I remember when I was a kid, my, my, my parents were in the, in the pest control business and we would do termite work. And one of the things we had to do is drill a lot of holes uh, through concrete, concrete blocks and, and so on and so forth. And we had to clean it up at the end. So you have all this concrete dust and you know, I'm probably about 10, 11 years old. And the, the supervisor who was on the project, uh, you know, told me to sweep it up. And then he showed me how to do it. He showed me how to use the broom. And then he had this little bucket of water. And what he would do is he would sprinkle a little bit of water on the dust. And then he would sweep it up. And that small amount of water was, was uh, pretty effective in keeping the dust from getting uh, into the air. Uh, when I first, you know, I remember going back the same as you do uh, when we had the asbestos days and, you know, asbestos, uh, you know, was, was public enemy number one. It needed to be removed from homes and, and from buildings. And part of that process was the misting or spraying uh, of amended water in the air to control the dust. And it seems that our industry has a pretty poor memory and we were, we forget why we did things. I think we forget the, the things that we did. And all of a sudden, there was this new interest in controlling particles on mold remediation projects. And somehow that this was a new technology. And a couple of products came out on the market. And um, they were making some claims, one of which said that uh, when, the, when the product was sprayed into the air, it attracted all of these particles to it. And um, I just wondered whether or not that, that was true. You know, I don't know how many of us have ever been in a, in a traffic jam, but it seems that when you are, the more cars there are, the, the longer it takes you to get from one place to another, the, the greater the chances are uh, to collision. And it seemed to me that uh, some sort of electrical or magnetic or static attraction um, in the presence of liquid was fairly unlikely to happen and that something else needed to be happening. I also noticed from thermal fogging thousands of projects over the years that there was a significant difference in the amount of particulate that was in the air before and after 
thermal fogging. So it seems to me that particle size, uh, particularly the smaller the better, uh, would be more effective than you know, putting out a bunch of large particles. And what we did is the first study was to determine, we, we took one of the products that was on the market, and uh, what I did is I, I essentially took amended water as the other, and I you know, kind of tweaked it a little bit. And we were able to generate way more particles with what we tweaked than this product that was you know, selling for a lot of money on the marketplace and was claimed to attract all of these particles. And it, you know, it was pretty interesting. Uh, we fogged two different products in two different rooms. Um, the, the fogger was placed on a table uh, in the room. That, uh, we had a turntable that rotated exactly one minute per rotation. Uh, we were able to turn the fogger on and off remotely. You know, we had extension cords you know, kind of running underneath the door. Uh, and we fogged these rooms. I think we measured uh, particle counts before. Uh, we then um, fogged the air uh, with the products and uh, we waited about five minutes to let a lot of the particulates settle out. And then we actually had cups that were over the, the sensors for the particle counters and we had a string that ran underneath the door. <laughs> we would, uh, you know, pull the string, the cup would come off and then we could get, you know, run those air samplers in there. And what we found were, were we were dramatic, we were able to get way, way more particles. And uh, we figured that the product that, you know, just using amended water, which is nothing really more than soap and water, uh, is just as effective as, uh, you know, quote unquote, miracle, uh, products would be. So that was one of the projects. Right. So first one, essentially you were, I, I thought that was really interesting too, because, you know, like, like you said, I come from the asbestos world and we used that. And back then we didn't have these lovely laser particle counters that you could, you know, handheld particle counters that were as inexpensive as they are today. So we were looking at it basically visually. And, and then we took some asbestos samples by PCM were analyzed by PCM, but uh, it was pretty much a visual thing. You actually used a handheld laser particle counter on that and were able to show that either product would work just as uh, well as the other. In fact, I thought, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, we, we had superior performance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We had superior performance with, with, uh, with what we had put together. And, uh, you know, the only thing I did is I just added some alcohol to it to thin it out. Alcohol is thinner than water, so we could produce more particles by adding a little bit of alcohol to it than just using, uh, you know, the, the, the soap and water. And actually, we used the same active ingredient that was in the other product to, mm. to prove the difference. So that they were actually the same. Uh, the second product, uh, or the second test that we did was I heard a couple times in public, and then I read a couple times again in these articles that were in the magazine uh, about um, a coating used following fire restoration, following smoke damage, and how this coating uh, was just as good and in certain situations superior uh, to a shellac-based product, which has kind of been the industry standard for, for many, many years. And the second uh, project that we did was to uh, determine whether or not that was or was not 
true. Uh, we utilized a chemical, uh, which is called oil of Cade, which is essentially the essential oils captured when wood is burned. So uh, this is the, it's the real deal. You know, many people have either used, uh, you know, when they cook liquid smoke, it's kind of like that, except much, much stronger because this is the product that is diluted in order to make liquid smoke. And what we did is we put it on some wood samples. Uh, we put it on straight. We put it on diluted, uh, I think 50-50 with alcohol. And we then uh, coated it with, the with two different coatings, a, a water-based coating and a shellac-based coating to determine which one, in fact, uh, you know, would be more effective. Uh, we had an odor panel. I think we had, you know, five or six people uh, smell it, kind of rate, you know, which one smelled better, you know, which one had better performance than the other. Uh, the panel was unanimous in uh, their opinion that the shellac uh, worked better. And um, actually that, that ended up uh, turning into a paper uh, which I wrote and uh, it was published uh, in the Siri Journal, actually. All right, Cliff, that, I, I was a witness to both of those. The second one, that, that odor was powerful and um, the shellac definitely, definitely did a better job, I guess. Uh, unfortunately, shellac is becoming, as I understand it, and you correct me if I'm wrong, more difficult to come by nowadays. Not sure. I mean, you know, if if you can't get shellac, you can't make M and M's. You know, <laughs> uh, that, that, that's what prevents them from melting in your hand. It, it's commonly used in apples. It's used in the pharmaceutical industry, and you know, when it comes to green or when it comes to natural, you know, shellac. Uh, it's, it's a natural product. It's actually, uh, you know, it, it's uh, it, it comes from insects. Yeah, uh, they excrete it, and it's collected, and uh, it's utilized uh, on trees. So you know, it's a natural product, and um, you know, I, I think from an odor control standpoint, uh, it works very, very well, and has uh, for many, many years. And it's been used for. I mean, when you look at most of the antique wood, you know, the stuff that was made in the 1600s and the 1700s, you know, all of that is finished with shellac and you know, it's kind of it's kind of proven itself over the test of time. Long term. All right. So those are a couple of examples of the types of things that Cliff and I thought about and uh, thought were excellent practice to research kind of, you know, does this product work better than this other product? The other thing that we've been working on, and I'll go over that for the second half of the show, is how different engineering controls work at reducing contaminants in indoor environments. And in this particular type of engineering control is the use of air filtration devices. And what we've done is uh, over the last five years, actually, we've looked at different variations on how air filtration devices are used. And then we did sampling before, during, and after the use of those devices to see what works best at reducing particles, at reducing uh, spore counts, at reducing um, temperature relative humidity and some other parameters, VOCs. So uh, not as much on those. The main thing we were looking at is particulate. And uh, we used a lot of laser particle counters. And like I said, in the second half, I want to get into that. But before we do, I'd like to kind of get the discussion going a little bit on 
on what, let's start with, uh, we've got three categories we want to talk about today. The indoor air quality slash mold world, the disaster restoration world, and the home performance world. What do listeners think uh, are the types of research that we, we need as practitioners to help us do a better job? We see a lot of research out there, and a lot of times it's stuff that we just can't use right now. I mean, the, the microbiome research and, and using, um, you know, the, the types of analysis they do, the, the DNA analysis is, is all very interesting, but it's not practical a lot of times for those of us in the field. So uh, what we're trying to do is get the information out and then uh, hopefully if, if we write a paper that practitioners put together, then researchers can reference that and use that in getting funding to help answer some of these questions. So let's, uh, let's turn it over to uh, John. John Lapoteer, do we have you on the line still? Yes, I'm still here. Hi, John. Hey, I'm just worried. You know, you and Lydia, and then we've got Jay Stake as well. Jay, you still with us? Yep. All right. You guys, not only are you both president and past president of IAQA, you do a lot of field work. And I'm wondering, John, what? let's start with you. What kind of things do you see in the field um, that, that you still have questions about and that you'd like to see some further research on? Well, I think one of the things, and, and this just happened today, um, we're constantly being uh, told that our clients are being referred to electronic air cleaners, UV light, and I, I would love to see a little more legitimate research on UV lights and electronic air cleaners or air filters. You know, we, we have clients that are, are being sold ionization machines, um, UV lights, all, all manner of indoor air quality improvement devices. And what Lydia and I have found in the field is that we just don't find any reduction in any of the parameters we're measuring when we conduct uh, an assessment. So we measure, to clarify, we measure each room of the house with the air conditioning off. And we measure for formaldehyde, VOCs, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, airborne particulates, temperature, and humidity. And then we crank the air conditioning up. We let it run a little bit longer. We determine the performance of the me mechanical equipment in each room and make recommendations to improve the indoor air quality accordingly. That typically might have to do with duct layout, uh, HVA equipment sizing, but primarily filtration, quite possibly in Florida, dehumidification and the addition of outdoor air. With those recommendations, we can get a measured and documented improvement. If I then turn the UV light on, I recognize no additional benefit. If I turn on the um, electronic air filters, in some cases, we can actually measure ozone. So instead of getting measured improvement, we can actually get additional problems. So I, I think the, the selling of these devices the, the marking language, for example, the UV light that kills 99% of, of, of everything. I, don't, I can't say that that's untrue, but it's untrue or it, it's unrealistic not to, to tell them it's based on dwell time. It's like the sun. The longer it shines on something, the more, more damage it can do. So this magic of everything's going to be removed as it goes by isn't going to happen. Lydia and I did an eye doctor's office 
and the contractor recommended UV light for particle reduction. I, I'm, I'm at a loss at how that happens. Wow. Now, EPA did recently update their um, their guidance on air air cleaners, and I, I I think you know that that's based on some pretty good research. So I'm just wondering, is it is it a research issue or a uh, marketing issue? I think it's a marketing issue. The dissemination of research is always difficult. I mean, we know where to get some research. We don't know where to get all research. But those of us that read the research or participate in the research aren't the ones that need the research. The, the ones that need the research are the ones that receive their information in a trifold glossy marketing brochure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a tough issue. There's just like what Cliff was talking about the, you know, with some of the, uh, some of the product manufacturers, you know, and, and, and nothing against the product manufacturers. They're important. We've got to have them. Um, I'm wondering, Jay, what else are you running into in the field? that you think we need more research. You go out and do a lot of uh, more real estate transactions than anything. You know, if we're looking, if you're looking at the research, I think there needs to be a more of a controlled research. There has to be, you know, apples to apples. And when people start doing, hey, a brand, like John was saying, these filters, the UV lights and everything, it's going through and it's not being consistent. Are they doing it the same way every time? And then in the field, you know, for the post remediation, out of the thousand plus jobs, it's less than, you know, 5% do it according to the 520 standard. And it's just, the marketing, they have their job to do. If they don't do their marketing and they don't sell the product, they lose their job. So it's almost like the Wild West. There's no, and I keep going back, consistency in the whole entire industry. I've got a, uh, a text question but, or a text comment. I want to bring that up in a moment. But before we do, I think, Jay, I want to kind of lean into what you're talking about. There's no consistency now. Um, you guys are president and past president of the Indoor Air Quality Association. So um, I'm hoping we can help maybe help create some of that consistency. And, um, but, but I think first, bring, going back to the point of what we're talking about today, we need as practitioners to tell the researchers what we need. So I'm gathering from what you just said, Jay, we need a way of evaluating when a remediation is complete. And do we base that on when the building is back to uh, a normal fungal ecology, whatever that is? Um, do we need more research on what a normal fungal ecology is? Uh, it's, it's called that in the IIC or CS520, but I don't think we really know what it is. Um, I mean, we, we have some idea as practitioners what we see as building conditions that are normal, you know, uh, no obvious wet spots, no odors. Uh, maybe, John, you have some particle count levels, I think, that you guys, Lydia, use as kind of a, a cutoff for what you consider to be a home that has too much dust in the air and not enough, or, or, or you know, um, a good level of dust in the air. Is, is that accurate to say? Yeah. 
when we measure airborne particulates, we want them to be below a certain amount. I mean, we've been collecting particle counts for quite a few years now. So we know what, what the average is for a typical residential home. Um, we know, of course, children and pets um, can, can add to that, the location of your home. I think people spend a tremendous amount of time trying to find a standard for an indoor environment. And I'll be the first to tell you that's just absolutely not possible. The influences of the area that your home is are tremendous. For example, a high-rise home is going to have lower particulates than someone that lives on a farm. Uh, uh, Inner-city housing is going to be different than a brand-new condo. So you have to use your experience and knowledge of collecting the information. And one of the problems with, with research is they spend so much time trying to find a, an average or a consistent. ERMI is a perfect example of that research. That research failed. They were trying to find an average or acceptable amount of mold in all homes, regardless of location or occupancy. That math is never going to work, even though people still recommend and use ERMI a lot. I, I think one thing that I wanted to add earlier is there needs to be a way for researchers to understand when they're being biased. And, and maybe even more so, the, the practitioners need to know when the research they're referencing is biased. And, and by that, I mean arranged for by the product that's paying for the research. That research tends to come out different than unbiased comparison research. Interesting. Um, Jay? You, you deal uh, you deal a lot with, uh, or I don't know how often you deal with people that are in sensitive situations, sensitized people, but um, John mentioned ERMI, and, and it's been an issue in the industry for several years now that we're getting a lot of people that are going to doctors who are recommending ERMI testing, and um, it's been very, very uh, difficult for practitioners because we really don't have much to go by. I mean, the ERMI, uh, as John was saying, can change depending on the area you're in. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a very difficult measure to, to use with respect to doing indoor environmental quality investigations and remediation. Although that's the doctors will tell us that's what we have, you know, now what that leads me to is John, you mentioned having these particle counts. I think we as an industry could help, the researchers, and I know one in particular, Joe Spurgeon, who would love to get that data. Uh, those of you out there that are doing spore trap air sampling, for instance, uh, to determine condition in homes, condition one, condition two, condition three. Joe would love to get that data, and he would help us to analyze it and determine, you know, what is normal, what is in the, you know, yellow light, what is a red light type of situation. So, um, I'm trying to figure out how we can, as a, an industry, help gather some of this data, maybe through the IAQ, AJ. Well, that's a, if you look at all the research that would be needed to, to be done, like on the ERMI, you know, it even stated on, I don't know if it still does, on the EPA website, this is not to be used for assessment purposes, it's only for research but yet people use it to assess their homes. And until we come up with a good 
solid, measurable, and you have the ASTM uh, standard for it. And if more and more people start following, then it gets into the insurance aspect of it and the financial aspect of it. I mean, you start looking at oddities. I'm dealing with the house right now where it has air freshener residue on the walls. Hmm. And you wonder how much air freshener they use in the house. Then you wonder what they masked over. And it's in a real estate transaction. I mean, so there's so many different variables. And that's, I guess, one of the aspects of the IAQA is to raise the bar to our members and to get some consistency in our members. Well, you're going to have two, 300 people, maybe more, in February going to the IAQA conference. Is there a way we can help organize those people to bring in their, their data and, and, you know, maybe find a way to, to use that data to help help us determine, you know, what, what people were finding in the field and uh, maybe, maybe have Joe or someone else help us with crunching those numbers. Well, maybe not at the conference, but what might be worthwhile, and I'll have to bring it up to our association headquarters, is maybe we could set up a web page where people could send in their documentation because right now our uh, conference is pretty well slammed with our uh, topics. I think it's a good idea. And the exhibit hall, yeah. And this way, then we could start and set up a committee to where they could start analyzing all this documentation, all the statistics coming in, and maybe get, you know, football field numbers. Well, look, in different I, areas. I want to go to a text here that I think it goes more to indoor air quality. And I, I, I like this thought uh, from uh, Bill, uh, Bruce White. I'd like to see more research on home health monitoring systems like Purple Air, AirThink, SmartSense, Aware. And I'm, I'm curious, John, are you seeing um, in your work down in Florida, are you seeing more people using these low-cost sensors? Uh a little bit, and I would say that Lydia and I would encourage it. So when we're working with our sensitive clients, it's, it's no different than having a carbon monoxide detector or a carbon uh, or a, a fire smoke detector. If you've got a sensitive client and they're using products like essential oils and some other things that dramatically raise the formaldehyde and VOC levels in their home, then yes, get them a, a home monitoring system. They're not as accurate as anything that a professional would use but neither are Home Depot moisture meters. So let them get it. It's an alert that you're now using or doing something that's dramatically impacting your indoor environment, and they can call us back out, and we can help them zero in on what it was. But I think they're a great item for sensitized clients. They're not really as accurate as you might think. We can place three or four of them um, on a countertop in a house where a client has bought several, and they all read dramatically different numbers from what our calibrated equipment does. But yet it does tell them when something they're using, a bottle they open, elevates and impacts the indoor environment. And, and that's, that's the benefit of the home monitors. Okay. I also uh, want to come to another uh, comment here. It's 
Remediation is not complete until the cleaning is done. A uh, reasonable fungal ecology is achieved and the source of contamination is removed. Agreed. Uh, moisture intrusion, building air Agreed. But what people want, they want numbers a lot of times. They want some kind of a standardization of, of when is, when are things back to normal. I agree we want to fix the moisture problem. We want to clean the area. How much do we have to clean the area? I mean, uh, there's people that can afford to have every piece of silverware in their home clean, but there's a lot of people that we've got to focus in on certain areas. So, it, Joe, Joe it, it, it's Go ahead. Um, I, I want to tell you what happened. Uh, I, I want to go back in history a little bit. Uh, I, I had a, an issue. Uh, I was doing an insurance consultation for a client who was uh, sensitive. And when I went out there, I, I borrowed from the local library a spec unit. And what was interesting is in the areas in her home in which she was complaining, uh, the spec, in every one of these areas, the spec found higher levels. Although they were good, the, the reading was higher in the areas that she was sensitized to. Uh, I, I was out on a, a site yesterday, and I took the machine with me. Unfortunately, it failed. It said everything was good, regardless of, of what happened. It never changed. It read zero, so someone must have dropped it or whatever. So, you know, I kind of learned a lesson there. But I believe that people don't want numbers, Joe. I believe that spec is right on with this red is a problem yellow is caution, green is good. And I think people want to see that green. I think they want to know what areas are yellow that they should be concerned about and can do more work in. And I think, you know, most important is what are the areas that are bad and, you know, where should the money and where should the efforts go? And, you know, I, I kind of like that stoplight. Uh, it's just a lot easier to explain the clients than the number is. I think that's a great point, Cliff. I mean, maybe it's not numbers so much they need as, as for us to tell them what's green, yellow, and red. I, I think that's that's a very valid point. Now, that residential, you'll see that. I think some commercial buildings, they want numbers, but uh, it, it kind of depends. And I also, I, I want to uh, note that uh, Don Fugler sent a, a text. Instead of uploading the data from everyone, perhaps the first step would be figuring out what criteria are being used. I, I like that. I mean, Jay, John, we, we have all these IAQA members doing all these different things with respect to what is, you know, what's an indoor air quality survey. It would be very interesting to find out what they are actually doing. I, I think that's an important, uh, important comment there. So how do you as a practitioner evaluate the air quality, for instance? So I, I think that's something that would be a lot easier to start with as well. And then when we know what we're actually doing in the field, and we tell researchers what we're doing, maybe that helps narrow down what type of research we need from there. Uh, so I'm glad, I'm glad we got that comment. We also got another one, uh, compiling data for records, going back to Tom Grillo, Tom at Particles Plus, the issue with trying to compile data from a large group is inconsistency in the testing method. So that goes back to what Dawn said. Let's find out what people are doing and then if we can get a people who are a set of people that are doing somewhat similar, somewhat standard method, 
then we can compare those numbers. I love it. Let's stop for a minute and thank our sponsors. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at siriscience.org. That's C-I-R-I science.org. All right, we're back. Second half. Now, that was very interesting. I think uh, it helped me to clarify things a little in my own mind. I hope it helps others. Um, Second category. Cliff, I want to start with you on this one. The disaster restoration side of things. What, what do we need more a better understanding of when it comes to disaster restoration in your mind? I think the big driving one now for me, Joe, is odor removal and particularly with the use of uh, hydroxyls. And there are a lot of things that are claimed uh, performance-wise about hydroxyls. And uh, I'd like to see some comparative testing uh, like was done by uh, Dr. Spivak uh, when he was at the University of, of Maryland. Uh, they, they did an ozone test. They actually had a burn room in there, and they measured what was in there before. Uh, then they set it on fire. Uh, then they put the ozone machine in there and uh, measured it. And, you know, they got a bunch of reactions. Yes, it removed. Uh, certain odor, yes, it removes certain chemicals. However, uh, it created uh, a bunch more. And there was this, when I was at Siri, there was a presenter, um, his name is Chris, and he has, uh, I know he's from Canada, and he actually had two different situations that he was investigating uh, where this type of equipment was utilized in homes. And in both cases, uh, the clients could not live in the homes anymore. There were significant reactions and, and so on and so forth. And I think one of the big issues data-wise is I do believe that one of these testing companies or, or NASA may have developed the technology originally and said it was safe. And everyone says uh, there's a safe and, you know, cites this NASA technology, 
and their specific device hasn't been tested, just these ones that were developed by NASA were. And I think it gives a misimpression uh, you know, to the industry. And it just seems every week uh, there's another project that's written up in, in, in you know, one of the industry trade journals, and you know, this stuff comes out and, and saves the day. And the one thing I learned over time in odor removal is different types of odor removal require you know, different types of tools and different types of methods. Great point, Cliff. Now, the, the other thing I think um, you and I both have talked about over the years is what is what is Category 3 water versus Category 2 water? I don't know that we've ever really uh, gotten a, a final answer on that. And um, I think the insurance industry spends a lot of money removing materials that have been uh, impacted by Category 3 water and um, that may or may not be necessary. I just don't think we have any good data to show that for certain drywall that has been hit by sewage, for instance, has to be removed and replaced. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't, what are your thoughts, Cliff? Well, I, I think that um, John Lepotier, I think, gets it right in terms of, if you look at S500, the remediation procedures uh, for category two and category three are very, very similar, if, if not the same in, in many situations. So I think the driving force for restorers, uh, public adjusters, et cetera, is to go for that category three. They're trying to go for the highest category because that enables them to uh, remove more materials. Uh, and, you know, if the materials are going to be removed, then the insurance company shouldn't pay twice or the policyholder shouldn't pay twice, you know, for a failed remediation and then a, uh, you know, removal and re replacement of the structural materials. So I think the way they're reacted to, uh, you know, if you look at the standard, you know, category two water is something that none of us would want to drink. Okay. And, uh, you know, the category three where they say wind-driven rain is category three. You know, typically I'm not going to agree with that. Um, you know, I think maybe the chart is out now where category two water would become category three water after seven days. You know, I never agreed with that. So um, it's an issue, I think, particularly down in Florida and in, in hurricane areas. Uh, you know, it, it's an issue, and I guess, um, you know, you need a you know, you can do it with lab testing. You know, I'm not sure that ATP uh, is an accurate method uh, of, of testing for it. I think I disagree with John on that. I think ATP gives us a number, and we can't really tell whether it's human skin cells. Uh, that are there, or it's uh, something else. But, um, you know, so there you get a number, but you're not sure what the number is. So, um, well, you know, I guess I also wonder even if it's there, if there's E. coli there, is it, is it really, do we have to tear out the base plate to get rid of the E. coli that's under the base plate? Is it really a health hazard? I, I don't know. I think we assume it is, and that's, probably a safe thing to do, but uh, it would be nice to know for sure. Uh, let's bring John in. John, um, thoughts on uh, disaster restoration research needs? Yeah, I, I think the biggest area 
needed is in the categorization of water in Florida. Anything that falls from the sky during a named storm, these guys want to call Category 3, and they're gutting houses for it. Roofers have side companies of restoration where any, any ceiling stain is categorized as Category 3 that needs to be contained and removed, including the flooring that the water may have dripped on. We've lived in homes and huts and teepees for a lot of years, and I can't tell you that there's ever been an issue with people dying from a roof leak. So, yeah, there's definitely a problem with uh, restoration contractors exaggerating a loss. And, and I actually do agree with Cliff and ATP. In our years of using it, we've determined that you're more apt to get a false negative or a false positive than ever get any meaningful data. Which brings up the question, what do you sample for to establish Category 3 water? Yeah. Are you looking for pesticides? Are you looking for petroleum? Are you looking for fertilizers? Are you looking for sewage? There are a lot of possibilities. And when you refer to the EPA um, or FEMA, they're looking worst case scenario with surface water flooding through a home to get people to sanitize their own environment as quickly as possible. The professionals should have the ability to distinguish between hazardous to themselves when they're restoring and not. And I think the best way to determine that in all of the peer review projects that I do for property owners is to simply look at the photos of the restorers providing the work when they're demoing in street clothes. Look, if it's category three water and you're picking it up and putting it in a wheelbarrow with bare hands, I'm going to be the first one to tell you it's not, I know it, and so did the guy picking it up. <laughs> I've got a comment too. Uh, Lee Center, who's one of the, uh, I guess you're, he's one of the standards chairs at uh, IICRC. They're looking to do some studies on Category 3. And I think that's, that's great. It's, we just have to make sure that as an industry, we have input into how that study is done and, and, and whether or not it's, the results are going to help us. So I've got Karen Dannemiller coming as a keynote. Uh, to our conference, October 16 to 18 at Seven Springs Resort. And this will be what our presentation's on. Cliff, go ahead. No, no, I was going to ask you or John, um, do you know how Inspectoscope works? Because I know that supposedly it has the capability of determining uh, Category 3 water, I thought. It has the ability to determine some bacteria. It it has a library just like it does for mold. Okay. But... To what extent? I mean, it's like looking at ERMI, 36 different molds, or hurts me, five different molds, and trying to determine the moldiness of a house, trying to determine the category of water based on, on bacteria alone may be a little, a little bit misleading. I wanted to point out for, for Lee, we do have in IAQA a position statement to clarify the categorization of stormwater that I will get to Lee for IICRC review. Great. You know, the other thing, this, this made me think about our research we've been doing, and um, Lisa Rogers, who's with Mycometer, they, they may have a way of um, differentiating between Category 2, Category 3, and I think her product uh, is something that maybe we should be looking at a little more closely. We have done some 
Uh, we've, we've added the micrometer recently to our research. Let's, let's go to that, John, real quick. I just want to give people an idea of what we've been doing, and uh, we're going to pre be presenting some of the results here uh, this year, and then I'm going to hopefully get this paper finished. We've been doing this for five years. Uh, let's skip that one. This is, what we're looking at is how different types of engineering controls, and in this case, it's the setup and use of air filtration devices affects contaminant removal in a hotel room in this case because that's what we're doing we're looking at hotel rooms at uh, seven springs resort and you can see here the uh, diagram of a hotel room a typical hotel room there's a bathroom there's an entryway and then there's a uh, balcony and this first diagram is just of a negative uh, and this is what's interesting when you go to do this research i'm looking for references right and i go okay EPA calls it, or OSHA calls it a negative pressure enclosure. I, I think I'd have to look at it again. Um, IICRCS 520 calls it a full containment. Uh, ACGIH calls it a full, uh, full containment. There's a third word that, that goes along with it. So even just getting the, the terminology right on what this was, was a bit of a, a challenge for me. Let's go to the next one, John. So that's a negative pressure enclosure. This is a negative pressure enclosure with air scrubbing. So you have a negative pressure enclosure, you add an air scrubber. Next, this is just air scrubbing, you know, just putting a, an air filtration device in the middle of a room. These AFDs that we used have a 90-degree turn in them, probably. Uh, Dr. Weil would not say that's the best design, but it's one of the most common uh, types of units used in the industry, the dry ease HEPA 500, which is what we used. And the air goes in on one side and comes out the uh, on a 90 degree angle. And it uh, does help to create a little bit of an air scrubbing rotation in that room. Next, John, we also compared positive pressure containment, which is where, and in this case, we, we put the air scrubber on the balcony and pushed air into the room. You wouldn't want to do that if you were actually doing a remediation because you'd be pushing the contamination into the hallway in the uh, hotel. But since we didn't have an actual remediation going on, we were just using the natural particulate levels and uh, spore counts and um, environmental factors in the room and seeing how they were reduced. We weren't doing any spiking of the room or seeding of the room. We just used the natural environment in the room. And next, we also looked at um, air scrubbing with two scrubbers and an elevated cattail. So they have a, a, a duct coming off the back end of one of the air scrubbers that goes up into the air to help try and break up stratification. We had heard that, you know, breaking up the stratification might help in particulate removal. Next, we looked at using two air scrubbers in kind of a vortex, trying to get two air scrubbers into the room and, and see how that would affect the levels of particles, the levels of spores, etc. Next, and here's some of the things we, oh, when we had a control room, um, and that's, you know, always a good idea when you're doing research, you got to have a control room. Next. All right. So one of the, the last year, 2018, I, I kept hearing that um, when you put an air scrubber in a room and you scrub the air in a room, that it, it has a small capture zone. And as a result of that small capture zone, you don't get good particle reduction in all parts of the room. So in this case, we put a particle counter in the, on the desk in a corner. We put a particle counter in the middle of the room, and we put a particle counter in the bathroom, uh, the bathroom, which is kind of separated from the main room. And we looked at what happened to the particle levels 
in that room over a 24-hour period. And you can see from this chart that even in the bathroom, yes, the particle levels went way down. These are 0.3 micrometer particles in counts per cubic meter. And um, I was happy to see that, but a little surprised to see it, but very happy to see that. Now, we also wanted to look at this, and, and there's a whole lot more data we have to crunch, but uh, it was interesting to see this particular result. And uh, when we write it up, we'll be able to tell people that at least in this scenario where you've got a bathroom and a hotel room that the particle levels, even just using an air scrubber, and this may have been an air scrubber where Danny was rotating it. So he'd go in every four hours and turn it 90 degrees, but it did help mix the air in the room and the air in the room pretty uh, evenly dropped to very low levels of 0.3 micrometer particles. We also have charts for 0.5, 1.0, uh, 2.0, 5.0, and 10.0 micrometer particles. We don't have time to go into all that today, but um, it was similar, although for the larger particles, not as dramatic. Next. This was the Instascope reading before and after, and you can see the mold particles in cubic meters were 41,000 before we started. At the end of the uh, just air scrubbing, no other remediation activity in that room, the airborne mold particles per the Instascope were about 1,695. Uh, very low, nice reduction. Next. We also did spore trap samples. These are a little hard to see, but we had similar results. Um, the spore trap samples started out at a, well, let's just look at the Aspen level, actually, which is 1,345. If you go up to the before S Pen, right there, John. We had 1,345, and the total was 1,450. That room actually had maybe a little bit of a, a residual contamination in it from something. Um, S Pen levels were not, you know, astronomical, but they weren't uh, what I would call excellent. After the uh, couple of hours of scrubbing, you can see it went down to uh, actually it went up a little bit, which made sense, right? You start to kick the particles around. Maybe there was some bedding or uh, some area on a wall that had a little bit of uh, residual aspen growth on it. Well, after 24 hours, look at the numbers again. We went down to 510 aspen from a start of 1345, and then uh, the total spores were like 530. Not, not perfect, but certainly much better than when we started out. So this is just one example of the kind of thing we're doing at the Healthy Building Summit. We also looked at the temperature, the relative humidity, the total VOCs. Uh, we did the micrometer testing and a lot more. So uh, we'll be putting all this data together. We looked at five or six different types of rooms, different configurations, and uh, hopefully it'll be uh, something that'll be helpful to remediation contractors as we go along. All right, it uh, looks like we're getting close to the final. Let's, let's go around for a final, uh, final thought from each of us. Let's start with you, Cliff. Final thoughts on practice to research. I'm looking forward to seeing everybody at the HBS. Should be a lot of fun again this year. I don't think we're doing much research this year. I've got enough data to crunch for the next six years. I didn't realize uh, how much work this was, but uh, it's, been, it's been very interesting. And we will have some preliminary results at a minimum for the conference uh, October 16th. John, final thoughts? Um, Lydia's here with me, and we're both saddened that we cannot make it to the Healthy Building Summit this year. Um, 
we absolutely love that summit. Um, Lydia? It's just too busy oh in Florida. Hi, Lydia. Yeah, we're busy in Florida. Hey there. Yeah, we're not going to make it this year, but we look forward to next year. We appreciate the invite. <laughs> Lydia, do you have any other kind of research things that nag at you that you'd like to see answered? You know, my big thing is particulates. So uh, the more we know about particulates and the devices that actually help our clients or hinder our clients needs to be out there because we see both. You know, I think that leads to our third category, which we didn't get to. And we're going to have a great panel on that. We've got Janine Zappa with Conservation Consultants, Inc. And I've got uh, Linda Wigington and Nate Adams. And uh, I've also got, I've got a, a great panel. Bill Spohn from True Tech Tools will be on that panel to talk about the home performance research needs. And um, I think a lot of times... Home performance kind of combines the building science and the indoor air quality aspect of things. So uh, with your comment, Lydia, I think um, that is a great comment in that, you know, it's not just adding a air cleaner. It's not, it's, it's the whole, um, the synergy of everything working together in a home. So do you have forced air? Do you, do you have a, a, filter that uh, do you have any outdoor air coming into the area is the mm -hmm. outdoor air being filtered and dehumidified things like that those are uh, I think important questions and uh, Linda Wigington who will be part of that group has been doing a lot of work here in the Pittsburgh area on reducing outdoor contaminants in indoor spaces which I think is a uh, very important topic especially in certain parts of the country we get these you know, uh, in, in the Pittsburgh area, we have some of the worst outdoor air in the country. People don't realize that. But uh, even today, 50 years after a lot of the steel mills closed, we still have a coke plant that generates a lot of particulate. And she's looking a lot at uh, the types of things that help affect, help reduce particulate levels in people's homes. And a lot of it has to do with the return air and the mechanical system. A lot of them uh, in Pittsburgh are forced air systems. And, um, and, and getting a bigger filter in there and having a better setup for your return air and also having more of a variable speed performance on your, uh, on your HVAC equipment. But I think uh, that's something we'll leave for a, a future show. Jay Stake, before we go, any final thoughts? No, uh, I think what we said, you know, we showed it at the conference last year on the panel's discussion on, you know, Category 3. And... I think setting up something on the website for documentation where we could set up a committee and start going through and evaluating and start coming up with some form of database. You know, and I think Don had a great, I just thought, I keep going back to that comment Don Fugler put in, and that was that I think first step is to determine what are people actually doing in the field when it comes to these first assessment of indoor environments and then, you know, uh, determining when a remediation is complete or, or has been effective. I think if you start with that, that would be kind of easy, uh, easier data to collect. And then when you have that as your basis, then we can add in the data that people are collecting and we'll know better why they're collecting it and what the purpose was. And then we have a better idea of what to do with that data. But uh, yeah, I'd love to help on that, Jay. If I can, if I can help with that committee in some way, let me know. 
because I think it's important. It'll be a great follow-up to what we're doing here. The last thing I want to mention is that um, I will be doing a panel discussion at the IAQA conference and expo at, uh, where is it, West Palm Beach this year, huh? West Palm Beach at the convention center, uh, February 19th to 21st. So what we're going to do is we're going to take... And it's our 25th anniversary. All right. And the first year we're back on our own for uh, in quite a few years. So standalone indoor air quality conference and uh, should be great. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to take the, the information we gathered here today and get a start on some ideas for practice to research. And then uh, at the conference, we're going to add to that. We've got panels on each of these topics. We'll be adding to that. We're going to do some proceedings from the conference. And I'm going to continue this discussion until we get to the IAQA conference. We're going to do another panel, hopefully get a lot of input from IAQA members, and then put some proceedings together, and hopefully researchers can use those proceedings to help them get funding to help us answer the questions we need to know the answers to as practitioners helping people solve indoor air quality, disaster restoration, and home performance issues every day in the real world. So I want to thank our guest today, Jay Stake, IAQA president, John Lapotere, past president, his lovely wife, Lydia Lapotere, also want to thank the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, at the controls. John, you got to have faith. Most importantly, I want to thank our group of listeners out there. Thank you so much for your comments. They're much appreciated. We will capture them and include them in the discussion as things go on. Next week, I've got, oh, by the way, I've got Larry Carlson coming in next week from Phoenix. Uh, we're going to talk more about restoration and the restoration industry. And uh, I'm going to ask some of these questions to Larry and hopefully get listeners to uh, again, chime in on what they think uh, restoration companies need to help them do a better job from the research community. So we'll see you next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.